I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. Those of you in the States today are celebrating July the 4th, and so am I. Now, I said I'd have a show out every two weeks, but you know what? I had a special guest. They had a book out yesterday, July 3rd. In fact, I talked to a guest today in the morning that has two books out today on July 3rd. She's coming up on a future show. I'll talk about that after this interview with Cameron Diorio. Cameron's first published comic book, his first professional work, was Josie and the Pussycats for Archie Comics. He co-wrote that series with Marguerite Bennett. He also worked on a Kickstarter that was successfully funded that we're going to talk about during the interview. But now he's working on Charlie's Angels vs. the Bionic Woman being published through Dynamite Entertainment. We're going to talk about the book, how he prepared to write the series, his team on the book, Sue Lee, Addison Duke, and Tom DiPolitano, and also about his day job, his freelance work that he's doing. He's a really smart guy. Oh, not because he likes thrash metal like me, just his background, what he's studied in school, the work that he's done, all that's going to go into his story. I mean, how can he help it? He draws from what he knows, which leads to a great story. Also, I kick back with the creator. We're going to talk about his favorite beverage, which happens to be one of mine. And he's up in New York, and it's a little hot this time of year. And so I find out where he likes to vacation, where it's cooler. So I hope you enjoy this bonus episode today with Cameron Diordio. Remember that name. He'll be going places. Let's join him here now on Creator Talks. Cameron, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you live in New York. Yes, uh, Astoria, Queens. Moved down here in 2011 for grad school and moved into Queens itself in 2014. So what do you think about it? Um, I've seen you complaining about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I live a bit off the beaten path. Not too much, but it's about a 20-minute walk to the subway. So when it's humid, I... Uh, I do get a little annoyed, uh, but uh, it is pretty nice. I, uh, I do like being able to get around because I am a little off the beaten path. I can like hear birds in the morning and that kind of thing. So I kind of get the best of both worlds. Uh, do you have a car? No, I got rid of it uh, when I moved into Queens, but I do miss driving. I grew up upstate, so I, I used to like that a lot. Yeah, but you don't miss traffic, though. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. <laughs> Uh, after grad school, I was driving a 14-passenger van for a job uh, between Harlem and Westchester every day during rush hour both ways, which was a journey. <laughs> oh, geez. Was that Breakaway Communications? No, uh, that was actually for Sarah Lawrence College uh, because I went there for grad school, and then uh, I had been working at the help desk there, and I was looking for more work after I graduated uh, with a Master of Fine Arts, if you can imagine that. They had a van driving job, which paid human money, which I needed. <laughs> but you did work for Breakaway Communications for a while. Now, what exactly did they do? I still do freelance for them. Uh, they are a B2B tech PR firm, which basically talking about business to business technologies. Some of the main clients I was on uh, early on were QNX software systems, which is like 
the infotainment system in cars and kind of contribute to the very critical systems that deal with self-driving cars and that kind of thing. The idea of making sure that the right decisions are being made in according with the programming, that kind of thing. And also uh, satellite communications uh, was another thing that I was working on. That you're writing content for all that? Yes. Uh, right now, I'm mostly doing it for uh, business process services type stuff, making sure that your workplace is running as smoothly as possible, that kind of thing. God, that's a far cry from comics. I mean, that's so it, different. It is. <laughs> Yeah, I basically kind of fell into it because, as I mentioned, I was going to grad school for writing, was working at the help desk, sort of fixing printers at a very low level. And basically after school, uh, I also had a journalism and mass comms degree from undergrad. And it was with one of the major clients at Breakaway being a printer company, uh, which evolved from there. They said, well, uh, you already fixed this company's printers, so you know about them, and you have writing degrees, so maybe this will fit. And turns out it did. <laughs> Well, now you're writing comics, too, on top of everything else. And when did your love affair with comics first begin? Do you remember your first comic? I'm trying to think of my first comic. I know my first interest in the world of comics came from watching the Spider-Man cartoon growing up in the 90s. And then from there, I want to say I was buying Digests, uh, Archie in the, uh, in the supermarket and that kind of thing. And I was big into Yu-Gi-Oh! as a kid, so I would end up in the hobby shops and I would pick up occasional Spider-Man issues, but I wasn't following it as religiously as I would end up following it later in my teens and that kind of thing. Well, you mentioned the Archie Digest. Was Josie in the Pussycats your first comic job? Yes, my first published comic, and it was amazing. Basically, uh, I became friends with Marguerite Bennett in grad school. We, by sheer force of luck, rented rooms out of the same house uh, and ended up in the same workshop together our first semester at Sarah Lawrence and also became very, very good friends and also were a couple of the only genre writers going there. We were both were very interested in horror and sci-fi and uh, were kind of worried that we were getting ourselves into uh, something with a lot more capital L literary fiction. We'd lived together and we'd talked comic ideas for a while. Um, and then one day she asked if I could help her out with a comic and I said, sure, what do you need? Like I can look over the script or whatever. She's like, no, I want you to co-write it with me. And I was like, oh, excellent. Yes, definitely. Uh, that's the story there. <laughs> now you read the Archie Digest. How familiar were you with Josie and the Pussycats? I was pretty familiar, uh, through the Digest, which I'd read when I was younger, although that had fallen off uh, a bit in the terms of my reading. But I also really loved the 2001 movie with Rachel Lee Cook and Rosario Dawson. I mean, it was very much ahead of its time, and I really remember enjoying it and having a good time with it. And also, the Pussycats cartoon was a favorite of my mom's. So when I told her about that gig, she was very over the moon. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, familiarity with Josie and the Pussycats goes way back to uh, Saturday morning cartoons. I distinctly remember watching them. I think it was CBS It was on. And they had Josie and the Pussycats in space. Did you see, ever yes. see that? <laughs> that was, yes, I loved that. It was Actually, a great show. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I loved that idea. If we had ended up keeping the series around longer, we would have, we wanted to go to space. We wanted to do that. But uh, we ended up uh, wrapping up in a good spot, I think. I would have loved to have gone to space if we'd had the chance. <laughs> you know, I go through old comics. I read them quite a bit. And I love looking at 
the uh, advertisements for the cartoons on Saturday morning back at the time. Because that used to be a big thing. Like Saturday morning was an into the afternoon, early afternoon, cartoons, cartoons. And it was the Archies. It was the Monkees, which wasn't a cartoon, but the Monkees and the, the Josie and the Pussycats. Did you ever uh, buy old issues and go through those and uh, look at some of the ads and go, wow, isn't that pretty cool? You know, I haven't actually looked too much at the ads of the old issues, but I love when I'm at a convention and it's like the last day. I love going to the long boxes and kind of fingering through and seeing seeing what I can find that looks interesting. Usually old copies of Jimmy Olsen because those covers are so outlandish. <laughs> yes, <and fun>. they are. <laughs> I have a, about four of those. I've been meaning to frame and literally just put up my wall because they're so much fun. But uh, I actually haven't looked too much at the old ads, but it sounds fun. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's just like a little time caps. But yeah, some of those old covers. And I was going through some long boxes and I saw some Jimmy Olsen and you have like hippies and stuff on them. And I'm like... <laughs> I don't care what's between the pages. The covers are just fantastic. <laughs> yes. You worked on a story for an anthology, and this was a recent Kickstarter, and that was successfully funded, right? Yes, yes. The anthology was Deadbeats. Uh, it's a music horror anthology edited by Eric Palicki and Joe Corallo, and they asked me to be a part of it. Uh, and so I was able to get Brent Schoonover on board, who's a great, great guy. We became friends via Twitter, and he does amazing work. And so when they asked me to do this, I was like, oh, I want to do a cosmic horror thrash metal story, and I know exactly who I need to draw it, because Brett and I have a shared love of old thrash metal. Uh, and so I looked him up, and luckily he was able to, to fit me in. That story is going to be called Grotesque, and I'm looking forward to it. I think people are going to like it. Brent's shown me some, some of the pages, or some of the early art. It looks great, as I'm sure you can imagine if you've seen his stuff. <laughs> yeah, Brent's great. I read uh, the Batman 66, the one with Egghead, the Vincent Price Egghead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was one of my favorites, yes. <laughs> Vincent Price, what a treasure. Yeah, one of the greats. Now, you write this horror story about thrash metal. You're into thrash metal. Like it myself, as a matter of fact, I was just listening to it this morning on my way <laughs> going for a run before we decided to have a chat. I uh, was jogging to ministry. <laughs> nice. Yes, yes, yes. Psalm 69, just to kind of wake me up a little bit. <laughs> Very nice. Obviously, ministry's in there. Uh, I mean, I do have sort of, quote-unquote, mainstream taste. I love Metallica before the Black Album, mm -hmm. especially Ride the Lightning, especially Master of Puppets, obviously. I do like Megadeth. I know that some people really can't handle Dave Mustaine's voice, and I get it, but I do love it. Iron Maiden's a little less thrash, a lot more harmony, but they're probably the best metal band of all time. I love them to death. Uh, big Judas Priest guy. Really the classics. I know what you're saying about Megadeth, because Dave does have that kind of voice, which is almost kind of like Weird Al territory. <laughs> yes, it sure yes. reminds me of that. I think I heard someone describe it as a cockroach going through a nuclear holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> but technically, though, his guitar playing is incredible. Oh Unbelievable. This is sad. I have tickets for Ozzy and him back in Pennsylvania. I bought these a while back. And as you probably heard, Ozzy was sick and had to cancel his tour and I heard recently that Dave has some kind of throat cancer. And I'm like, what's happening to all my heroes here? <laughs> wow, yeah, I, I had not heard that. That's unfortunate. Yeah, I think that uh, came out last week. I saw it on uh, Facebook. It was posted, yeah. I mean, the prognosis is good from recovering. They said they can definitely treat him and it's treatable and all of it. He has to cancel everything for now, except for the mega cruise. But I was like, oh, my God. Well, I'm glad he's going to be okay, allegedly. I mean, hopefully. He's a fighter. He's a fighter. Yeah. yeah. Well, back to comics. Yeah. You have a comic coming up, Charlie's Angels versus the Bionic Woman. Now, this is quite a feat of taking these two very different 
properties and bringing them together. How did you get involved in all this? First off, thank you for the kind words. But uh, yes, I think that what happened was, well, I'm pretty confident what happened was uh, when I was at C2E2 uh, last year, not this year, uh, a Dynamite editor was looking through my Josie copies on my table uh, and asking if I'd be interested in pitching uh, something to them. I said yes, and we ended up talking about that, and I ended up pitching them something that went through a few stages. They ended up not doing it, but luckily that editor uh, passed along my information to Matt Idelson over at Dynamite, who asked me to pitch this, uh, Charlie's Angels Bionic Woman. So I had to think about it. I did some research trying to figure out where I could find the intersection that I would find particularly interesting and something that I could tell a competent and hopefully engaging story about. Yeah, I ended up settling on Adrenalazine, which was something deep. I don't know how un, how unknown it is with for bionic fans. It was this substance that could be used either to cure paralysis or to grant bionic-like powers for a 30-minute burst. And so I thought that was very interesting because it spoke to both sort of the way that Charlie's Angels, the angels are about unity and friendship and uh, looking out for one another. And the Bionic Woman and OSI are also about those things, but it's much more about loyalty and a more aggressive good, uh, I guess, than the Charlie's Angels, which of course do get into some scraps. But uh, I thought that kind of spoke to the two different ways of looking at some sort of power, I guess, if that makes sense. Well, I had read you said that the theme behind this is, if you had to summarize it, good people doing good things, but they're ending up at cross purposes. And that's how they wind up encountering each other, each doing what they think is right. And that's going to put into question for themselves, what are we doing and why are we doing this really? Yes, exactly. Jamie, uh, in this story, OSI has been shuttered and privatized, and so their patents have been sold off. And so Oscar Goldman ended up going to work for this private military contractor, Neris. And so Jamie followed him uh, in part because she loves Oscar. She understands that he helped save her life and they became very close friends and she trusts him and she trusts his judgment. And so he says, these people are fighting for good. These people are doing, continuing the legacy of OSI. And in addition to Oscar saving her life, OSI saved her life. So she's like, these are the people who are looking out for me. And so she sort of pledges her allegiance to them. Um, And then you've got the angels who are called in by a mysterious inventor to try to steal this property in order to help people, in order to uh, make a medical breakthrough accessible to people. So they're both trying to do the right thing. They're both trying to stick by the people that they care about. It's a question of the greater good and also, again, coming at those cross purposes and seeing how things resolve. For folks who aren't familiar with the premise of the story, now this is set up in 1983 and this is after the series would have ended so you're kind of picking up after the series ends yes pick 1983 because that was a major turning point year for a lot of things in the world stage uh that was the year that there was a blip on the radar where we almost ended up russia and the united states almost ended up nuking one another just because there was a radar mistake but someone decided wait wait let's hold off and double confirm this before we blow up the world. I believe it was the year we started funding the Contras. So there was a lot going on. There were a lot of decisions being made uh, that were seemingly well-intentioned or may not have been that well-intentioned, but that were in order to protect people ostensibly that could have had and often did have very bad consequences. So I thought that was a good year to set the story in. You know, I was there back at 83, and I yes. I don't remember that blip. I don't know where I was, what I was doing. I mean, I was a teenager, so I probably didn't like really pay much attention to it. But do you think today 
there would be cooler heads to prevail and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, let's hold off, let's double check this, because I sometimes I wonder. That's a great question. I don't know if those cooler heads would prevail. I hope so. Uh, I think that I'd like to believe that cooler heads would prevail, that we wouldn't end up doing that. I think that uh, a lot of that will depend on who ends up getting to make that final call. Hopefully uh, it will be people who are well aware of the consequences. It reminds me of, I can't remember who said it. I wish I could, because it's great concept and I hope I don't butcher it when I say it but uh, someone once claimed that the best way to deal with the nuclear codes was to have them etched on a human being's heart and so every time that a president wanted to launch a nuclear device they would have to themselves kill that person with a knife take their heart out look at the code so they would know viscerally in front of them they are ending lives I think that stuck with me (laughs) Uh, yeah, that would give me pause. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that reminds me of, and this was on television back in, I think, the late 90s. There was a live version of it, Failsafe. I'm not familiar, no. The one that I saw on television starred Richard Dreyfus, George Clooney, and broadcast live. It basically deals with a situation where we have bombers heading towards Moscow, and we get so far along the way with dropping of the bomb that we cannot recall them. They won't take any uh, hails to stop. So they figure it's a trick. And what winds up happening is, spoilers, we bomb Moscow. We're going to make it even on both sides. So the U.S. president has to decide to bomb New York City, where his family is at the time. Wow. Sorry if I spoil it for you, but it's very impactful. I don't know if the live version was ever recorded and made available, but it stuck with me. It was really, really uh, impressive. Very good. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. I don't mind spoilers so much. Because it is definitely about the journey for me. Absolutely. And the acting is outstanding. I haven't seen the original movie, but I'm sure it's good, too. It's, I think I just have trouble watching it now that I know how it all plays out. It's sad. But, That's um, fair. You know, people carrying out their duty and just trying to keep the world safe after this horrible accident have to make a very difficult decision. It brought it to mind when you talked about etching the code on someone's heart and the president having to take it out. You know, really make them stop and think about that. And not to bring the show down and not to get into <laughs> politics, but you're very politically active, which is great to see that you're out there fighting for whatever you believe in. Because a lot of people just complain about it and don't try to enact any kind of change and just let things wash over them and say, oh, you know, but you're part of the process. You're trying to help get the right people for you in office that can help make it a better world, make it a better country, make it a better city. So I'm glad to see that you're active and that you're actually doing things, not like some people just complain about it. Thank you. I mean, I do complain too. I get, I try to do both. Well, that's uh, fair. You've earned the right because you're, <laughs> you're, you're involved, so you can complain. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. I love being a part of it. I, I guess it's less that I love being a part of it and more that it's easy to feel powerless, and I often do feel powerless the way things are going uh, in general politically. And so I was trying to look for ways that I could help out, ways that I could have a, an impact. And so... Uh, yeah, I originally got very much inspired by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and so I started volunteering for her campaign in her primary, and then I kind of just realized, wow, as far as first campaigns go to try to make a difference by do, acting locally, that was a pretty big one. I think she was on like the Time 100 list recently, and she's obviously changing the national conversation, that kind of thing. So that's definitely a great first experience to make you feel like, oh, wow, actually doing this does affect things, does change things. So I've kept doing that, and I'm glad I have. I'd like to do more of it. Well, I'm glad to see you're involved and that you're doing something. And people are probably saying right now, Chris, what are you doing? You're going off the rails? You're talking politics? No, no, no. (laughs) See, there's a point to this. There's a method to my madness. See, now what people know 
is the mind, Cameron behind the book. This guy writes technical stuff. He's involved in politics. He knows about science and technology. This is the person behind Charlie's Angels versus Bionic Woman. So you're going to read a really good story here. I've read the first issue twice. Just to let people know, that kind of sets the stage for the meeting of Charlie's Angels and Bionic Woman. This lays it all out for you, as Cameron has done here on the show, giving you some background. But first issue really does kind of set up that encounter between the two of them. And you have a team working with you producing this book. Sue Lee is doing the art. And what do you like about Sue Lee's work on this book so much? She's so great. I think my favorite thing about Sue's work on this book is her inks. She does such a great job of having that that heavy, dark style that I think really goes well with, it still communicates the fun of Charlie's Angels and the fun of Bionic Woman, but also grounds it in a way that I think really speaks to the type of story we're trying to tell. The idea of, we have these people who love their friends and love their coworkers and that kind of thing. But also this is, I don't want to say a dark story because I don't think it's a dark story, but there are a lot of shadowy things going on. So I think that Sue's use of light, shadow, and dark lines really, really helps make this book a lot better than it would otherwise be. Yeah, I'm glad you point that out because you can see the charm and the playfulness on the faces, the facial expressions. Yet it is a very serious story. It's a very serious topic. You can see the character of Charlie's Angels, Bonnet Woman, exuding through the facial expressions, which is great. She does great with the acting. We're lucky to have her. And the rest of the team, want to give them a shout out. You have Addison Duke. She's doing the colors and letters Tom Napolitano. And I say that because often these individuals who work on the comics and put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into it, without them, you wouldn't have a finished book. So, exactly. you know, now, as far as Sue Lee, is that something that Dynamite worked out for you? Did you have any say in the matter? Because I know quite a bit they do assign the artist to the book. Yeah, actually, I was lucky enough to have a say in it. Basically, uh, when Matt and I were talking about this book uh, and he said that he really liked the pitch and was ready to go forward with it. He said, we have to figure out an artist. And so Sue was the first person I suggested. I met her through a mutual friend a couple of New York Comic Cons ago and flipped through her work and really, really liked what I saw. Actually kind of funny, while we were in the process of casting the book, she ended up drawing a, uh, I think it was a commission of Black Cat, but she ended up drawing her with like the Farrah Fawcett hairstyle and like kind of made a joke about it. I said, oh, well, this is serendipitous. And so I sent Matt to look over her stuff and he obviously liked it quite a bit and so we were able to get her on board so here's what else we've learned today folks cameron is connected we're talking marguerite bennett Prince Scootover, <laughs> Sue Lee. Look at this guy. <laughs> i don't mean a name drop i just ended up with a couple nice friends <laughs> now part of your work to write this book was watching the shows because obviously you didn't see them when they first came out at least i don't believe you did um, no. <laughs> i saw some of them i didn't watch them religiously you know here and there and you had to go through, I guess you went through and watched them all again. Now, that sounds like a lot of work, but it's also probably for you a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, it's great. And also one of the, well, I don't want to say one of the best things, but a great side benefit of uh, writing comics and especially intellectual property comics is that there are so many fun things you get to write off. Like, it's like, oh, I bought uh, like all the seasons of Bionic Woman and Charlie's Angels. Write that off uh, because it's, it's research. <laughs> Business expense, uh, yes. But no, it, w it was a lot of fun watching them and going back and mostly to get that tone uh, and try to find ways those tones intersected. Luckily, they were totally relatively similar, but uh, 
yeah, I, I watched the originals, and then I also went back and uh, rewatched a couple of the 2000s Charlie's Angels, Charlie's Angels and Full Throttle, and then I also watched the 2007 short-lived Bionic Woman show that was, I think, eight episodes long with Miguel Ferrar, Michelle Trachtenberg, I want to say. Which episode was your favorite of Charlie's Angels and the Bionic Woman, and why? Great question. Uh, the Charlie's Angels episode that I really liked, I'm trying to remember the the name of it or the broader plot but basically a roller skating hippie uh goes by this car in the opening sequence and then the car explodes and it devolves into this whole uh, big uh conundrum with who was trying to kill this person was it the wife was it such and such and i thought they really got into the weeds there and it's just a bionic woman it's a good question i really like the original pilot which i guess technically wasn't the bionic woman uh but her original introduction uh because i thought that it gave us a lot of grounding it really gave me a lot of meat to work with and i also kind of love that we are never told how much she was cost to make i know there's a few moments in the in the series where it's alluded to and kind of joked about that they'll never say what it was. So that's nice. I mean, I, I don't know if I adequately answered the question, but there are definite parts that I really enjoy throughout. You know, just to go back, I think that would be a great deep cut cosplay is a roller skating hippie. <laughs> that yes. people try to fit with. Now, what's that from? <laughs> what is it about the 70s episodes that you like? I don't know if you prefer the originals over the reboot. I know they both have their good qualities, but there's something about the 70s episodes that go into the 80s that have a certain charm. What is it about it that you like so much, and what is it about that that you're going to bring into the book? I think there's definitely a certain charm to a lot of media from the 70s, where even though there's so much, I guess, cynicism going on after Watergate and that kind of thing, I think there's a lot of cheeriness in the media. I've talked in a few interviews about how uh, there's a mystery science theater episode called Riding with Death that uh, is riffing on a Steve Bochco made-for-TV movie uh, that aired in, I think, like, 77. There's a classic line in it where this character is in a jumpsuit doing, like, a fadeaway handshake to a guy in a sleeveless shirt, and he says, one day it's going to stop being the 70s and we're all going to be in trouble. So I guess that made me think of the way that the culture kind of transitioned from sort of sunny in some ways, not to say that there wasn't dark stuff like Three Days of the Condor, which is amazing, that kind of thing. But uh, I feel like in the 80s, we got a lot more grounded, a lot more greed is good, a lot more dark. So I think the idea of looking at that transition period, but to speak to the 70s shows themselves, I really think that they, they really brought out that cheeriness, that love, that interconnectedness between the angels and between the people in OSI, that kind of thing. Now, speaking of dark, you are a fan of horror and sci-fi. And even though you're doing this book now and you've done Josie and the Pussycats, what is it about horror and sci-fi that you like so much? And what was your first exposure to each? Great question. I think that what I like about horror and sci-fi is that uh, is some of the same things that uh, Rod Sterling liked about horror and sci-fi, that you can use it to examine the ways that we as a society think and react to things in a way that sort of circumvents our initial defenses. And also, I feel that horror in particular allows us to most directly reach our audience because if horror is well executed, I feel that that is one of the most intense feelings you can have while reading is dread, fear, terror, that kind of thing. So I like to have an effect on my audience level. I think that horror is a great genre for that. And science fiction... I think really allows us to imagine out 
how things will go if we go a certain way, and also play with the implications of different trends and that kind of thing. As someone with a technology background, I love thinking about like, okay, so this is what we think is going to happen in 10 years, but what are some of the unintended consequences? Especially like when you're in technology PR, you've got to think about what might go wrong and cover and figure out what you would do about that. So sci-fi is sort of like tech PR, but doing the opposite. <laughs> As for my original, uh, my initial introduction to them, both might be The Twilight Zone. I was watching that ever since I was, ever since I can remember, but maybe more specifically slash without copping out to one answer for both. My earliest introduction to horror was probably Tales from the Crypt, uh, the TV show on HBO, uh, which ended up leading to me reading the comics, which I love. And for science fiction, good question. Uh, maybe iRobot or uh, that Haley Joel Osment movie. Oh gosh, what is it called? It might be AI. Is there a favorite? I mean, those would be your first, but is there one that you're like, uh, this really sums up the genre for me. This is a very good example of horror. and It hits all the right beats and sci-fi. Good question. As for sci-fi, if I were to pick a book that really hits all the right beats for me, I would say The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell, which is a novel I read in a religion and science fiction class. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the basic concept is SETI finds proof of sentient life on another planet. And so all of the countries are battling over, not battling literally, but trying to decide who are we going to send out there? What are we going to do? And so the Catholic Church is like, we're just going to send the Jesuits. We don't really need anyone's approval as long as we can get the money to send the Jesuits out there. And so they go out there and somewhat spoiler alert, it turns out there's not one but two species and they're both sentient, but one subjugates and eats the other. And so the idea is what is our responsibility? What's our moral and ethical responsibility to stop this? And can we? And that kind of thing. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> that, is, that, that, is, was, that is something yeah. else. Uh, <laughs> Send the Jesuits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's wild. It's weird. It's very strange. I liked it a lot. As for the nailed it sci-fi movie, I might be cliche and say the original Blade Runner, the mm -hmm. director's cut. And horror, I feel like you can't beat for pure craft level most of John Carpenter's stuff. My favorite John Carpenter movie is They Live, although Halloween is way up there. In the Mouth of Madness is a favorite of mine that I know is not everyone's favorite. I mean, it has that driving metal type opening in the beginning and also deals more with cosmic horror type stuff, which is definitely in my wheelhouse. <laughs> okay, well, what else besides, and right now you're working on Charlie's Angels and Bonnet Woman, what else do you want to write down the road? What else do you have your eyes set upon? And not necessarily that you can reveal anything that's in the works, but if you had the opportunity, what would you want to do? I would love to get some creator-owned stuff off the ground. I've got a bunch of ideas popping around in my head, but also I, I have my eye on a lot of IP stuff. The, the big, big dream career length goal would be to write a spider-man book but i would love to write something about the twilight zone uh, i would love to do something with reanimator there's so many cool properties out there i would love to bop around some horror stuff some marvel stuff also some creator-owned horror sci-fi type of things now i think dynamite's published some reanimator haven't they yes well <laughs> <laughs> your foot's in the door sir <laughs> that, that could be a possibility Yep. Keep nudging. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so Charlie's Angels, Bionicle Manette, is that a four-parter? Yes. Okay. Have you actually finished scripting? Are you through all four issues and now Sue Lee's working on the art? I'm actually going to finish the fourth issue probably right after we have this conversation. Uh, oh, okay. 
But yeah, issues one through three are all scripted up, and Sue has put the finishing touches on three, I believe. So that's going over to the colorist and letterer now. It's interesting. I'm going to have written the entire arc uh, before most people see it, uh, which I know is pretty common in comics, but it still feels a little surreal. (laughs) (laughs) And so that first issue is coming out in July. As we're having this conversation, I think it's due out in like a week or two. So it's coming out very soon. Yes, July 3rd. Now we're getting to the part of the show, kicking back with the creator, where I ask questions of you to learn more about you as a person, which we've been doing, as you noticed, organically. (laughs) But these are the ones I ask all my guests, you know, just have fun with them. So for rest and relaxation, Cameron, what do you like to do? There are a ton of things, but I think that uh, the thing I like most to do for rest and relaxation is to play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it's an opportunity to hang out with friends and tell stories, that kind of thing. And also, the structure gives me a lot of inspiration. The idea of being able to play off of things. One of my favorite comic ideas that I've been tinkering with and thinking about trying to get published came off of a D&D player that I made for a campaign that ended up not getting off the ground. I was like, I really like the backstory I was working with here. I think I want to tell this another way somehow. <laughs> Oh, okay. So you you may want to do a D&D based story? Yeah, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be like Die or like mm-hmm. Rolled and Told necessarily. Without getting too deep into the weeds, basically uh, the concept was a cyborg druid, uh, more or less, or an android druid, all metal. So kind of going from that and trying to thinking about, uh, I guess I'm kind of talking in circles, I don't want to give away too much uh, without, but uh, the basic concept. I think I... <laughs> I've got that. Yeah, sorry to be evasive. No, that's right. (laughs) I'll name drop here a little bit. So I had Dean Kotz on the show, and he's doing Warlord of Mars Attacks for Dynamite. And he's big into D&D. If you're looking for an artist, you might want to say, hey, Dean, this might be up your alley. Anyway, just saying, bringing people together here on the show. That's a great point. I'll (laughs) look him up. (laughs) He's up in New York. Hey. Yeah. You've heard the show, so you know these questions, which is great because you've had a chance to think about it. Your (laughs) favorite birthday, what was it and why? There are a couple of contenders, but I think the best answer is probably my 27th. Because I turned 27 four days after my published comics debut with Josie number one. So, like, that was a massively great week for me. And also, if we're going to extend the, the window a little bit, I turned 27 right before New York Comic Con as well. So, within about a week or two of that birthday, I had my first ever comic come out. I was on a panel in New York Comic Con. I was doing signings in New York Comic Con. So, that felt great like really, really overwhelmingly great. Like I was sitting next to Ryan North. I decided, I'm like, I've been reading your stuff since basically I knew how to read, ever since I logged onto the internet. I was a little starstruck. But uh, also on my birthday itself, because it was around Josie 1, a lot of people were able to come out and kind of celebrate uh, at my favorite bar in the neighborhood, which was a lot of fun. Now, how are you going to top that? <laughs> right? Exactly. I feel almost bad for the rest of my birthday. You peaked. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this is a question I don't ask too often, but given that you're living in New York and you know it's hot, humid, and it's tough, what is your favorite vacation spot? When you want to get away, where do you go? It's a really good question. I uh, When I was younger, we would go to the Adirondacks all the way upstate, which I loved. I loved being up there. The air is so great. I love being able to climb the kind of easy mountains while enjoying the forest, that kind of thing. Although I recently did go, a couple years ago, I went to San Diego for the first time. And the lack of humidity is something I absolutely adore. And there is a lot going on out there. There's the zoo, there's in and out So I think San Diego's on a list somewhere, but I think the Adirondack still takes it. It's close, and you can get some cooler air, too, by being up at the higher elevation. So 
Exactly. Yeah, perfect. The hypothetical situation, you're on a desert island, okay? You'll get off eventually, but you're going to be there for a while. So what is the one book you want to have with you to read for pleasure, take your mind off the situation, either something you mean to get around to reading now or something you just love to read repeatedly? What would that one book be? I think that the answer would probably be, if it could be an entire collection, then it would probably be the Alan Moore run on Swamp Thing. But if it was just one book, it would be uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Ah, okay. Very good. Sci-fi again. Sci-fi classics. <laughs> Another hypothetical. Dynamite says, we're going to make an action figure of you. What is your action figure's accessory? I would say my black messenger bag. I carry it with me pretty much everywhere. Uh, it's festooned with all these different enamel pins from all the different conventions I've been to and that kind of thing. But it's always got a water bottle, umbrella, deodorant, portable phone charger. I mean, I need it for my notebooks and stuff too, obviously for working and whatever. But uh, it's kind of like a mini bug out bag that I have with me wherever I go. <laughs> I get you. I have the same thing. I have like the uh, the briefcase for work that has like all the chargers spare tablet headphones everything i need is jammed in there lip balm you know everything yes yes (laughs) and then i have my go bag for the gym that has like the bluetooth uh, earbuds and the water bottles you know i just have to have everything ready to grab and go because that's the way life is you know and if i if i don't have it pre-packed i'll forget something like oh i don't have a charging cable i have to go find one and you know it's it's, it's, it's messy, so, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The night before, I, d- I don't go into the office too much for work. I am freelance, mm-hmm. but uh, when I do go to the office, I definitely make sure the night before I'm like, okay, let me just make sure my bag is set because I'm not going to be functioning <laughs> to, to double check. You're like me. I prep things ahead of time. That way, I can just grab it. Because if I try to do it in the morning, no, I'm not thinking straight. Uh, I don't know how I'm doing this right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, by the way. Pacific time. Oh, no problem. Wow. You know what? It got me out of bed. I got myself all set. I'd much rather do it early when I'm fresh because I'll be tired at the end of the day, no question about it. But when I do get home at the end of the day, I can have my beverage of choice. What, sir, is your beverage of choice? Well, I've been drinking, and I guess I'm going to be a very stereotypical soon-to-be 30-something in New York City (laughs) and say that I've been drinking a lot of seltzer lately. When it comes to alcohol, I'm usually a whiskey whiskey guy. Uh, I like I tend it towards scotch, but there's a maple pecan bourbon that uh, my local liquor store sells. It's very, very nice. You know, that's what I've been enjoying myself lately is bourbon. I do like beer IPAs, but see, the problem is when I was in my 30s, I could pretty much drink or eat anything. But now it's like it all just shows up on me. So I'm not like out of control, but we always have that little bit you can lose. So... I'm, my wife has us on Nutrisystem, which is a great idea because I don't have to think about what to make. Regardless, at the end of the day, I have a glass of bourbon. <laughs> hey, you've earned it. <laughs> yeah, I've earned it. Right now, I'm enjoying, not right now, <laughs> good lord, Chris, <laughs> yeah. with my cereal. It's, it's no. almost 7 a.m., time to have the bourbon. <laughs> it's noon somewhere. No, I, I enjoy like a bullet. Uh, bourbon for example and uh, i'll have to check out the maple pecan because the thing is when i have something like that i don't feel bloated i actually feel fine i mean i'm not like going crazy with it i'm having it just you know with some ice and just to relax not to get plastered or anything like that but i do find it at least for me it sits better um so i can see why you would enjoy it too but you know i have not tried this since we talked about thrash metal but i understand that metallica has their own 
uh, I believe it's a whiskey. It's called Blackened, and I cannot find it in the area. Every place I go, it's not available in your area, but I hear it's pretty good. Yeah, I've never seen it or tasted it, but I'd be willing to give it a shot. Although, uh, I don't know uh, how much good Metallica's produced in the last couple of years, but you never know. You never know. <laughs> uh, it, could, it could be good. The other metal-related thing I've tried, and it's not too bad, is uh, Dave Mustaine has blessed a beer called A Two of the Month. So, yeah, that's not bad either. It's fairly light. You know, it's not a real heavy beer. I saw on his social media, someone wrote, uh, wow, Dave's a real lightweight. But I thought, you know, Dave's probably had enough. It's, yeah. it's probably yeah. good that it is a lighter beer. <laughs> yeah, I, apparently, I don't know how true this story is, because I think I heard it fifth hand. But apparently at one point, I don't know if they were touring or they were just on the same bill that night. But apparently Alice Cooper, after he'd been born again, uh, was on a bill with Megadeth and he saw them partying their faces off backstage. So he just very like very low key was like, hey, I see what you guys are doing. Have a good time. If you ever want to change, feel free to talk to me. Wow. <laughs> Soft uh, sell. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I think he said it nicer than yeah, that yeah. probably. Because uh, he seems like a very nice man. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so like just kind of like trying to reach out, which I thought was a nice story. You hear these stories about these bands and people that are our heroes in some cases. It's, it's pretty interesting. It's like, wow, they're just like you and me. You know, I was watching, uh, and this was so funny. I was watching the Metallica movie. Um, oh, gosh. It's kind of monster. Yes. Did you see that? Uh, I saw clips of it. It seems uh, wild, but please go on. What really struck me was they were interviewing Lars at home, and he was talking about being honest with the music, and he's like, you know, whoa, you're talking all metal and everything. And in the background, you can hear his kid saying, Daddy, Daddy. <laughs> and he's like, yes, dear. And it was just like the <laughs> funniest moment to me because like he's talking all metal and cool and everything, and then he's got his kid going, Daddy. <laughs> 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 that alone was worth but it was it was a great film though i really because you get to see the psychology of the band and how they were breaking up and then they bring in the dr phil not not phil mcgraw but a doctor that counseled them and you're watching this unfold in the movie and then you also see in the movie dave mustaine confronting lars about the way oh, wow. he treated him yeah and dave like i'm listening to him talk to him i'm like my god this guy's really smart i mean he's just making a lot of sense he just seems like a really together guy i mean they were talking like about 2003 so this is years yeah. after they threw him out but i was like my god this is an incredible conversation like a fly on the wall so if you haven't seen the whole thing it's amazing it really is a great film yeah. i would I'd highly recommend it just to see the dynamics between all the members how the psychology plays out and to see dave come back and confront lars it's an incredible conversation it really is yeah it's, i can imagine I definitely have to check that out. It's very open and honest. So as a writer, just watching the dynamics, you'd probably get a lot out of that and really enjoy it. For sure. Yeah. Thanks for the recommendation. Final question. So you're working freelance. Do you enjoy and prefer working as freelance versus someone like me who has to go into an office? <laughs> Not that I'm complaining. I'm glad to have a job. But do you like that lifestyle? Is that best for you? And can you... Are you able to weather the ups and downs and uncertainties that sometimes comes with that? I'm very fortunate in that uh, the agency that I used to work for, Breakaway Communications, when I went in freelance, I said, hey, you guys have been great to me, but I'm quitting and I'm going freelance. And they said that thing that you always fantasize a company will say when you go to quit, which was, what can we do to get you to stay? And I was like, oh, awesome. Thank you so much. And so I ended up working out a situation where I still keep I still do regular hours for them every week. Uh, so I have a steady source of income, which is such a huge, it's unbelievably important. I, 
I don't know where I would be without it. I probably wouldn't be able to stay in New York if I didn't have a reliable source of income. It doesn't necessarily have to be from them, but it's great that I have that to fall back on at times when other projects get leaner and that kind of thing, which is hugely helpful. But I'm not as true of a freelancer as some are. Uh, I do love freelancing. I love the flexibility. I, uh, I was up in Syracuse last weekend to officiate a wedding, and I was able to travel on Friday and travel back on Monday because and save a fair amount on airfare and also see my family for longer without having to clear the time off with anyone, which was so nice, that kind of thing. That is great. And that, by the way, is a great compliment. Someone saying, you know, how can we get you to stay versus, oh, your hands are full. Let me get the door for you. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, they could have done that. <laughs> well, in some companies, that's just what happens. It's like, okay, well, we're we're done and we better get you off the site because there's, you know, privacy and information that they want to secure. And I think that's becoming less and less of a thing. I think they were learning and being a little more sensitive to people when they decide to leave as long as it's under good terms. You know, like yeah. you give someone like you did, you give someone notice and it's kind of the decision that you're making and you're honest about it versus dropping a bomb on them and saying, oh, I'm out of here. I feel it helped that I was like, I'm quitting because I'm going to be writing comics yes. and doing other freelance work, which is my dream. Uh, and they're like, <laughs> oh, well, if you want to do your dream, by all means. <laughs> yeah, I really got lucky both in getting into comics and also in the fact I thought for sure, like, oh, once I once I leave Breakaway, I'll still be OK off of sheer freelance. But I'm definitely very grateful that I ended up still working with them. You're living the dream now, it seems. And, uh, you know, hopefully we see more comic work from you, Dynamite Reanimator. You're just getting started, and what a great start. Congratulations. Hope to see more. And I really appreciate you being on Creator Talks this morning to talk about yourself and Charlie's Angels versus the Bionic Woman. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Cameron officiated wedding that went right past me and I had that in my notes next time he's on I'm going to find out some more about that but as I mentioned in the opening of the show I had spoke to someone this morning who had two books out today on July 3rd Liana Kangas she'll be joining me to talk about She Said Destroy through Vault Comics and she'll also talk about the other comic that she's illustrated Devil's Die through Black Mask also coming up Jeremy Lambert who's working on Doom Patrol along with Gerard Way We are going to discuss the direction of the series, the other creators who will be working on the book, and about the television series. Until then, you can follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. And there you can find my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. In addition, if you want to reach out to me, you can reach me through email, contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. And visit the website, creatortalks.com. Lots of good stuff coming your way, so don't miss a single episode. Out every two weeks on Thursday. You can subscribe through iTunes. Please rate and review if you have a chance. It goes a long way to helping the show and spread the word. Word of mouth is the best promotion for the podcast. Tell someone who likes comics. You can listen to the aforementioned Apple Podcasts iTunes app. You can also listen to Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, Amazon Dot and Echo devices, also known as smart speakers, and now also on Spotify. The choice is yours. However you wish to listen, whenever you wish to listen, as often as you like to listen, it's all free. Just subscribe so you don't miss anything. Well, I hope you're enjoying summer now that we're in the thick of it. I hope it's not too hot where you are. hope you're staying cool. I'm trying to stay cool here. I want to thank all my guests who have been on the show and those who are coming to the show. You make it what it is. 
I couldn't do it without you, and I couldn't do it without you listeners. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I know you have a lot of choices, so your time is much appreciated. I hope you got some great comics at your local comic shop today or wherever you got them from. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.